Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold, and this is the third Sunday of Ordinary Time, and today we're talking about the Gospel of Matthew. And so I'm hoping to give you a kind of a big picture of what Matthew is doing, and then turn to the readings for the third Sunday of Ordinary Time and describe why it is that this story is being told in Matthew there in chapter 3. Then we'll conclude it hopefully with some understandings of how it is we participate in the life of Christ as disciples. And so hold on and we'll talk about the Gospel of Matthew. Let me just briefly talk in general about the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe the one gospel that was written in Hebrew, clearly written by a Jew who's very familiar with Jewish traditions in the Old Testament. Uh, and according to uh, church tradition, going back to Papias in the beginning of the, uh, the second century AD, it's the first gospel to be written. You may have heard that modern scholars think that Mark was the first one written because Mark is the shortest. They think if it's shorter, it must have been written first. I think that's a very debatable premise. But the early church tradition is that Matthew is the first gospel written. And in fact, Matthew is the most frequently quoted gospel by the early church fathers, much more so than um, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, and it's the gospel that is quoted in the earliest uh, writings of the fathers of the church. So first Clement, who was probably written by the Bishop of Rome, uh, at the end of the first century quotes Matthew, the epistle of Barnabas, another very early uh, writing of the fathers, and the Didache, and parts of the Didache could go back into the first century, but clearly it had come together by the early, very early part of the second century. And they all quote uh, Matthew. And so when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, um, and we think of the Gospels as sacred texts, and they are, but remember Gospels are always God's word in human language, and so it uses the Greek language, although it may have been translated from Hebrew. Um, that's a possibility uh, scripture scholars have talked about. But that the most frequent description of the Gospel of Matthew in the early church and I think the best description by modern church scholars, it is a form of biography uh, that is current in the first century AD. How you'd write about Julius Caesar or anybody else. Uh, it's an organized telling of the story of their life. We're used to biographies as being completely chronological. It wasn't always so in the first century or in Greco-Roman literature. And so Matthew's gospel seems to conform with the understanding of biography from about 20 centuries ago. And so it's the most Jewish of the gospels. Uh, it's pr clearly written for Jewish Christians. It presupposes a familiarity, familiarity with Jewish scripture. Here's an interesting aspect of Matthew. It quotes directly to the Old Testament 44 times. And just compare it to the other Gospels. Mark quotes the Old Testament 18 times, Luke 19 times, and John just 12 times. Mostly the other Gospels focus on uh, what Jesus has to say. But Matthew, 
wants to show you how Jesus' teachings, how his ministries don't replace the Jewish scriptures or the law, but fulfills them. That's the key thing. The time of fulfillment is at hand. And so he presupposes that you know something about the scribes and the Pharisees and the traditions of the elders. He uses um, Jewish terminology like korban, or he refers to the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. And I'll explain that in the next part of uh, this podcast. But uh, these are very Jewish ways of talking. And so clearly Matthew is an historic witness to Christ. Uh, There's really only two, Matthew and John, the two historic apostles of Jesus who left us gospels. Luke, remember, is a Gentile who is a disciple of St. Paul, who in turn was evangelized by the early Christians and learned the gospels, not because he was an eyewitness to Jesus, but because the early apostles and the early Christians evangelized him. And then, uh, of course, uh, Mark is um, a disciple of St. Peter and may have been a very young man, maybe a boy, uh, during the time that Jesus um, was alive and preached, although apparently Jesus may well have been a guest in uh, John Mark's uh, mother's home, so he may have met Jesus, but, you know, he's, he's maybe a kid when all of this happens. And so... Uh, Matthew likes to think of Jesus as the new David or the new Moses or the new Isaac or the new Solomon. He's always using Old Testament figures to give you an understanding of Jesus as um, the true king of Israel or Jesus is leading the new exodus into the kingdom of heaven or Jesus is the beloved son who is born by a divine intervention just like Isaac was except that Mary is, uh, he, he, Mary is virgin before, during, and after. Or the new Solomon, the wisest of, uh, of kings, the wisest of teachers. But uh, the organization of Matthews is the key. So like Luke, it starts with an infancy narrative, but told from St. Paul's perspective, not the virgin mother's perspective. And like Luke and John and Mark, it ends with the passion narrative and the resurrection. But it's the in-between part where Matthew is unique. He, in all the other Gospels, Jesus' teaching is interspersed throughout the Gospel. But Mark intentionally organizes Jesus' teaching into five discourses that are set apart from the episodes of conflict with the Pharisees or casting out demons or walking on water. So if you were to look for Jesus' teaching solely out of the Gospel of Matthew, um, you would find it in five places. Chapters 5 through 7, Matthew 10, Matthew 13, and Matthew 18. Organized like this. The first discourse is the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. The second discourse is Jesus' teaching his disciples about how they're supposed to go out on mission. The third discourse is the parables, the stories Jesus tells, which are moral, ethical, but about this life of grace. And then the fourth uh, discourse is on the nature of the church. Um, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. 
and the gates of the netherworld will not prevail against it. And then the final discourse, the fifth discourse, is the Olivet Discourse. Why does he teach five different discourses? Because, friends, there's five different books in the Torah, the sacred teachings of the people of Israel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what St. Matthew offers is the Sermon on the Mount, the Mission Discourse, the Parables Discourse, the Discourse on the Church, and the Olivet Discourse. And we'll get into that in more detail as we read through the Gospel of Matthew in the coming year. But now I'd want to turn to the reading for the third Sunday of Ordinary Time, and it's from chapter 4 of Matthew. And it's a bridge story from how you go in Matthew from the infancy narratives, the genealogy, Jesus' baptism, Jesus' struggle with Satan in uh, the wilderness, and then in the next chapter, and next week, that first discourse on the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Beatitudes. So let's turn and talk about what's being offered to us as Christian disciples in Matthew chapter 4. So now we're in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus has just uh, resisted or conquered the devil in the wilderness, and this is how it starts. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that what had been said through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light on those dwelling in a land overshadowed by death, light has arisen. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As he was walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And he said to them, come after me and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. He walked along from there and saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. He went all around Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and curing every disease and illness among the people. And so let's go through and break that down. So this is the story where, you know, the beginning is the genealogy, the infancy narratives, this uh, Jesus really is a solo actor being baptized by John the Baptist, then going at it with the devil and conquering the devil in the wilderness and a temptation I think we're all familiar with. And then in the next chapter, chapter 5, we go immediately into this discourse where apparently thousands of people come to hear him speak. Why does he get that big crowd going from like Nowheresville and baptism and in the wilderness to suddenly he's a celebrity and everybody is listening. Well, um, this is this bridge story and the purpose that it sends. It says that John the Baptist was arrested. That was his sign that his public ministry was to begin. So he went um, to the north, to Galilee. 
You know, there is this tension in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, where uh, the word Jew is used. But you know, everybody in the Gospel is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. All the disciples are Jewish. All the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees are all Jewish. The actual word used is Judaioi, which means Judeans. Over the last two millennia, that's gotten kind of shortened that everybody's a Jew. But it's because they're the surviving tribe when the 10 northern tribes were destroyed by the Assyrians in the 8th century. So we think of all of them as Jews out of this much more complex reality, which is the people of Israel. Why is his teaching uh, drawing crowds? Uh, because he heals. He exercises. He uh, makes the lame walk and the, de the, the uh, deaf hear and the, the, uh, the blind see. Mark makes a bigger thing of that in the beginning of his gospel. But this chapter 4 of the gospel of Matthew says it. It just doesn't give us the stories that Mark gives us to draw our attention to Jesus. One of the things I want to point out is that, that um, scripture uh, passage about land of Zebulon and that land of Naphtali, the, this light, this world of darkness has seen a great light. That is actually a quote from Isaiah 9. And remember, Matthew quotes to the Old Testament 44 times, which is significantly more than any of the other um, the other uh, authors of the Gospels do. But it's that reference to Zebulon and Naphtali. And so Jesus' ministry is where those ten tribes were destroyed. And so what Matthew is pointing out, that God has sent his son right to the heart of the destruction of Israel, these ten tribes that broke away from the kingdom of David and then fought amongst themselves, Ephraim and Manasseh. If you read um, Isaiah 9, are in fighting over who's going to be in control of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then they want to attack uh, Judah, Jerusalem, with Syria, Gentiles as their allies. And remember, that's what leads to the destruction of the uh, ten northern tribes, because Judah makes a treaty with Assyria, this growing regional power who comes down and destroys Samaria and takes them all into captivity. So it's this, this epicenter of this great betrayal. This is where Jesus goes, and this great light is teaching, and it's healing, and it's the presence of God. And remember Isaiah 9, and this is the quote that Matthew's relying on. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in a land overshadowed by death, light has arisen. And so when Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, he makes it very clear that it's talking about um, uh, the Gentiles uh, that are in Galilee along with all the Jews. It's, Mark makes it very clear that both Jew and Gentile came to Jesus in Galilee. Remember the pilgrimage site in Israel is supposed to be Jerusalem. But when Jesus starts teaching in Galilee and Gentiles and Jews come to him, what Mark and Matthew and Luke and John are all pointing out is a pilgrimage site has changed from Jerusalem to Jesus. 
um, because the locus of mercy has changed. And how do you know that? Well, remember, Jesus calls at the end of this gospel, he calls brothers, he calls Andrew and Simon, who is Peter, and Simon is always mentioned first, so it's actually Simon, Peter, and Andrew, not Andrew and Simon, Peter, although Andrew, according to the Gospel of John, is the first of the two brothers called. <clears throat> and then James and John uh, are also called. And I said it last week, I said it's God is undoing the effect of sin. It's why Jesus says, repent and believe you know, repent and the kingdom of heaven is at hand because to repent is to repent of the sin of Adam and Eve and the way that we join into that. And remember, that sin radiated out to the brothers, Cain and Abel. So when the gospel uh, authors point out that the first four disciples that Jesus calls to make fishers of men are all brothers— it echoes at this healing of this rift between brothers because it's also not just Cain and Abel. It's not just Simon, Peter, and Andrew, or James and John. It's the civil war from uh, the northern tribe that led to the betrayal of Jerusalem, which led Jerusalem to just uh, go tit for tat, and uh, the destruction of the integrity of the 12 tribes or the complete destruction of uh, the integrity, which had started some time before. But there is another thing, and it's really what I want to close this section with, and it's about the kingdom of heaven. And so a modern Orthodox Jew might call God Hashem, that is the Holy One, because the Pharisees had built this, uh, tent, this fence around Torah. And if the, one of the Decalogue is, do not use the, you shall not use the name of your Lord God in vain, then the, tent, the, the fence around Torah, I don't know why I'm saying tent, the fence around Torah is that you don't even say the name of God lest you use it in vain. And so they make up words like Hashem or the Holy One or the Tetragrammaton, which is Yahweh, but you drop out all the, continent, uh, the, all the, con the vowels, and so you only get the consonants. Y-H-W-H is how we transliterate it. And so... Matthew refers to the kingdom of heaven. Luke, a Gentile, will call it the kingdom of God because he doesn't have the same sensitivity that an Orthodox Jewish Christian would have. But what does Matthew mean by the kingdom of heaven? And I want to suggest to you, and this is really based on the scholarship of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth in his book, on his three-part book on Jesus of Nazareth, when he talks about this bridge story um, in Matthew and especially in Galilee, he says that the kingdom of heaven really has three meanings and they're all present. It's a multivalent phrase. So the first is a Christological meaning. And that simply is, is that the kingdom of heaven is present wherever Jesus is. That's why when Jesus calls his disciples to be with him, well, they become part of the kingdom of heaven because to be with Christ is to be part of that kingdom. But there's a second part, and this is the part that Protestant Christianity really dwells on, but it's there in the, the Catholic tradition too, and that's the mystical interiority of the experience of God. Think of John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila or the early uh, 
uh, hermits in the Egyptian desert or the long monastic tradition in Catholicism. The idea of meditation, uh, that the kingdom grows within each of us. So it's not simply this connection of grace to Christ, but it's also this growth we all hopefully see in ourselves as we become more Christ-centered in our life. But the third dimension of the kingdom of heaven is clearly ecclesial because Jesus himself uh, links it to the work of the disciples. Why there is a discourse on the mission of the disciples to bring people to God the Father, the, the, the power of the disciples to do what Christ does, and then what the church is. So these three dimensions of um, the kingdom of heaven, um, the presence of Christ, the mystical interiority we experience in prayer and how we become friends of God in prayer, and then the ecclesial, uh, our part in the historic church, um, which has the ministry of Peter, the ministry of the bishops, the ministry of the priests, the deacons, and the laity, uh, that the kingdom of God is this visible, subsistent reality, as, Saint, as the Second Vatican Council would call it, um, that is both it has an ethical dimension, but is fundamentally a grace-filled dimension that proclaims um, Christ uh, to the world. You know where you see that? You see it in the Gospel of Luke, in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember, the Pharisee says, I've done all these things really well. I give my money to the poor. I live a good life. And the tax collector says, have mercy on me, a sinner. What you see is the ethical and the grace aspects of Christian discipleship there. Yes, you do good things, and yes, you are a sinner. And so both of these aspects of Christian discipleship are present. How we try to live an ethical life, but that in itself is not enough. We need God's grace because we're sinners. And so what I'd like to do in the final section of this uh, episode of Oral Valley Catholic is uh, turn to uh, an understanding of how it is that we live this Christological, uh, mystical, grace-filled, ethical discipleship with Jesus. So the Gospel of Matthew has a great emphasis on discipleship um, and that salvation comes from the Jews and then we're invited to follow after Jesus. Now, I'm just going to put this in the context of the part of the early part of the gospel I've already talked about. Remember that Christ is um, baptized, and then Christ goes into the wilderness where he has this struggle with the devil, and then there's these temptations, and it's temptations to misuse his power. It's his temptation to want power in the world. It's this temptation to call attention to himself because it'll be good for other people. And then he says no to all of these things and yes to simply the part he's called to play in his Father's will. Think about that in terms of your own journey as a Christian. You're baptized and what happens? Well, you start struggling with the devil, right? You struggle with the devil as you struggle to live an ethical life, but you find temptations that undermine you. You struggle to live a grace-filled life, but sometimes temptations of doubt 
if you just did it your own way, maybe, whatever the doubt may be, or maybe this is too much, uh, will try to undermine the, the grace-filled aspect of your life. And the importance is, is the Christological dimension of the kingdom of heaven. You pray because prayer is what it means to be with Christ. You sit with Christ in Eucharistic adoration or your breviary or your rosary. Um, and then there's that interior part um, where there is always this dialogue going on in your conscience between the demands that faith makes on you and then the demands that the world makes on you. But that is the mystical aspect of uh, the Christian life. Uh, what happens if you just collapse into your instincts and you're constantly just wanting to do it because it feels right? Instead, you're looking at this teaching of Christ and trying to live it in your life. And that's the mystery. That's what the mystical experience is. Um, it's not always a, vis, a, a vision or a locution, although that is part of some saints' mystical experience. But when you're conceding and submitting to the demands that God makes on you for an ethical life and having the struggles that you have, uh, well, that is part of what the mystical experience of spiritual life is. And then remember Christ and the ecclesiological dimension Christ does uh, what his father sends him to do. Don't allow people to put a wedge between, in your mind, between the church and Christ. Uh, I think part of uh, walking with Christ is just sitting in a pew with your priest and the people in uh, your pew. And you look around, and we're sometimes we're such a motley crew. But it is where you are called to live love of neighbor in the presence of Christ. So think about the Christological dimension as your prayer life, that the interior mystical dimension is where grace and uh, ethics come together, and then the ecclesial dimension of the kingdom of heaven is uh, your participation in the community uh, that meets at St. Mark or whatever parish you participate in, uh, where you're called to a real experience of God. Uh, sometimes people say to me, and I've become more of a smart aleck over time as I've thought about what people say, and they'll say they may not believe in Jesus, but they'll say they believe in something. And I always ask them, does that something you believe in ever require anything of you, or is it simply your projection of what you think you'd like the ultimate reality to be that fits your lifestyle? What I love about uh discipleship is I know I didn't make it up. I may struggle with it. I may even do it poorly, but I didn't make it up. I didn't make baptism up. I submitted to it. And in submitting to it, I submitted to this relationship with Christ present in my daily prayer. And when it comes to the ethics of the church, the moral call of the church, and the life of grace, the sacraments, I didn't make any of those up. But when I submit to that ethical life that the church calls me to live according to her ethical and moral teaching, and I come to the sacraments, I'm living this mystical part, this interior experience of what it means to be in Christ's presence as he cleanses me. Now and probably sometime there's going to be some purgatory in Father, John, Father John's future. 
Uh, you, I hope you go directly to heaven because that's what the saints said we should hope for. But I like to always, you know, try to be realistic about my own struggles. And then the third part, which is the, the ecclesial dimension of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's about participation in the church. Remember why we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent comes from a word, metanoia, which means change how you think. And when you change how you think, then you can see Christ's presence in this, um, in prayer. Even when you feel alone, you know because of your faith that he's there. The mystical interior experience of Christ in the ethical and grace-filled aspect of our lives. And the ecclesial aspect, where this kingdom does have a presence on earth, uh, which needs and will be fulfilled in heaven. But the church is a supernatural reality, uh, trans-historical reality, uh, from this world to the one that's come. Remember last week I talked about St. Paul and that reality of this, the end of something, the old world, and the beginning of something, the new world. And that's the life of the church. So the Gospel of Matthew, I hope this has helped to give you like a strategic view of what Matthew is about, the tactical view of why in chapter 4 he talks about this teaching in Galilee, because amongst other things it explains why he has huge crowds when you turn the page into chapter 5, but also this experience in your prayer, ethical life, life of sanctifying grace and the sacraments and your life in the church and how it participates in the reality of the kingdom of heaven. So I hope to see you at Mass. Uh, give me a like if uh, your podcast uh, host allows you to do that. Uh, God bless you, and uh, I'll see you next week.